0: You're listening to Sermon Audio from First Baptist Church of Van Holstein. For more information about First Baptist Church and our services, please visit www.fbcva.com. Thank you, worship team. Good morning. Good to see you here today. Hope and pray that you're feeling more at home all the time in this space. Uh, This is now our fourth Sunday here at 565 Column McKinney Parkway. Um, Amazon has found us. Um, even the U.S. Postal Service has found us. I know that's shocking to uh, some, and if you work for the USPS, I mean no offense to you this morning, Um, but uh, yeah, we are excited for what God's doing here, and um, uh, again, we're adjusting much like you would do in a new home. We're figuring out the heat and air and all those sorts of things, especially during uh, this time of year when it can be really cold early in the morning and it warms up by the time we get done here and all of that good stuff. Uh, There's still some things that need to be done, tidied up, still a punch list uh, being worked on, but it's winding down uh, pretty quickly. Uh, There's some things that we've known we would need to do uh, just on our side of things once we got in and got settled, and so we'll be taking care of some of those things along the way as well. Uh, But this morning, go ahead and turn to John chapter 11. And while you're turning there, I want to mention a couple things, uh, really as uh, informational purposes, but also for prayer. Uh, Things have really ramped up now for our Lionheart Children's Academy. They will be launching. uh, Their first day will be March the 4th. And so their staff reported for orientation this past Friday morning, spent the day uh, getting acquainted and getting to know some of our staff on on the church side of things and uh, talking about our partnership together uh, and so it's, it's an exciting thing. Yesterday they hosted an open house from uh, 9 in the morning until about noon. Uh, a number of families came through, I understand like six families enrolled their kids just yesterday morning, so now they're up over 100 students enrolled, uh, 12 teachers hired. Um, really cool because um, some of you know the history of this, this started long ago, 2020 was the first time we had a face-to-face meeting behind masks, <laughs> a crazy time, remember? Um, In 2020 with the leadership of Lionheart. And so this has been a a long journey in many respects and it was just really cool to meet some of those people that we've been praying for even before we knew who they were. Uh, And so uh, they are truly in a gospel partnership with us and so I hope that you'll be praying for them. Uh, And you'll have an opportunity to do that a couple of times. March the 1st, that's a Friday, the Friday before they open officially on that next Monday. There will be a prayer walk here on the campus, and we invite you to come be a part of that. It's that morning. Uh, And then on March the 3rd, that Sunday, March the 3rd, we will have a commissioning uh, time, a commissioning service uh, as a part of our Sunday morning worship that day for the staff uh, of Lionheart. And so those are some things that you can uh, look forward to. But this morning, we're returning to our study of the Gospel of John. And since we have taken uh, an extended break... Uh, for the holidays and for our transition into uh, to our new building, I, I want us to review for just a moment. And I want to remind you of John's purpose statement, the reason why he writes. In John chapter 20 verse 31, he makes it clear to us even before verse 31 uh, that, that, that these, th- these are not all the things that Jesus said and did. Okay, In other words, uh, there's no possible way that I can include in this short biography basically everything that Jesus did. But he goes on to say this, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And remember how that ties in with Peter's confession there that we've been looking at over uh, the last couple of weeks as we transition transitioned into the, this new space. And so what John is saying is this isn't just a biography. I just don't want you to get better acquainted with Jesus as a, a, a religious leader or anything. You know, I write these things so that you may believe, you may come to believe In Jesus as the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. That really ties in with today's passage in John chapter 11 here. Uh, Now remember, uh, keep that in mind as as we continue through uh, John's gospel. This was a series that we started in December of 22. Because John chapter 1 is very much a Christmas passage. And that's where we started. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. Uh, the same was in the beginning with God. All things made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. It goes on to say there later in John chapter 1, and the word became what? Flesh and dwelt among us. That's the incarnation. And so we started there in December of 22. We spent most of 23 uh, in John's gospel, making our way up to this, uh, this point uh, in our study. Uh, took a brief break there in the summer for a summer in the Psalms. Uh, and then, of course, our break for the holidays this past year. And here we are back at John chapter 11. Now, if we were to look at John's gospel kind of through a wide-angle lens, uh, I could give you a much more detailed outline of the entire book, but it really kind of falls into three broad categories. Uh, The first category that covers the first several chapters there is what we might call opportunity, Uh, and that's where where Jesus presents himself to his disciples, to the Jews, to the Samaritans, to the Jewish leaders, and to the multitudes, Uh, and things seem pretty peaceful for the most part. In those early chapters, right? But remember, if you're with us in our study of John's gospel, something shifted at some point there. And suddenly, Jesus didn't seem to be so widely accepted, so warmly welcomed. (laughs) And so what you find in that next section is opposition. Uh, There's this conflict uh, uh, with the Jewish leaders over Moses, remember that? Over Abraham, over who Messiah actually is, his miraculous power. And as we're going to continue to see here, they would not believe on him. They wouldn't believe. They missed the point. He was right there, and they missed it. Uh, And then uh, in the later chapters here of John's Gospel, you find the outcome. That's the faith of the disciples, uh, the continuing unbelief of the Jews, and ultimately the victory of Jesus Christ. Uh, And so, this morning, we're going to look at a section that would be, uh, if if it were to be shaded, we might say that this is a section that that carries one of the darker shades of providence. One of the darker shades of providence. Maybe you've been in one of those seasons in your life. Maybe it was uh, only recently a medical diagnosis that you received, that you didn't expect. Maybe the prognosis uh, doesn't offer much hope. Uh, maybe you've been in a, in a challenging season of infertility. Uh, there's just a, a lot of different seasons that we might describe as one of the dark shades of providence. And if I were to take a survey of the room this morning to ask if you believe that God works all things out according to his will and in his timing, I'm sure most of you would, uh, would generally agree with that statement. I know that I do. However... Knowing a truth in abstract and living in the light of its reality are sometimes very different things. The truth is, I don't really handle disappointment and setbacks very well. More often than not, if I'm completely honest, I act as if I expect things to work out according to my will and in my timing, and I'm not very happy when they don't. And please tell me I'm not the only one. Sometimes life comes at you fast, in ways that you don't understand, in ways that maybe even make you feel a bit hopeless. So where is God in those seasons? What is God doing? I had one of those seasons in October of 1996. I've been in ministry for uh, several years up to that point. I've been a student pastor. I've been an associate pastor. Uh, My family and I at the time, it was uh, Christy and I and our two boys. Uh, we traveled the entire, really most of the eastern half of the United States uh, in full-time ministry, uh, preaching and teaching in places from as far away as Bar Harbor, Maine, all the way down to the Metroplex. I had the opportunity to travel most parts of the United States, uh, even internationally, uh, speaking in different places. And we were in Pinckneyville, Illinois. I'll never forget it. I was preaching a, a weekend um, for a friend of mine there. And we were at an after-service fellowship, And as I was sitting there and I was enjoying fellowship, meeting new people as we did week in and week out, that was just a part of that type of ministry, kind of an itinerant ministry where you're in a place for a few short days and then you leave and go somewhere else and that kind of thing. God just filled my heart with with an overwhelming desire that I, I found it difficult to describe to do life with a group of people. For, for most of my early years of ministry, I never imagined or envisioned that I would be a pastor, a local church lead pastor who was responsible week in and week out uh, for preaching and teaching and all those kinds of things. I always thought I'd be in a different kind of role. But God began to just work in my heart in a way that I couldn't describe. I wanted to do life with a group of people, and I wanted to, to dedicate their babies, and I wanted to baptize their kids, and I wanted to, uh, to do weddings, and I wanted to be there when they lost a loved one. All the things that make up life in a church. And so God um, allowed us that opportunity. My first pastor, it came in that year, 1996, in Clarksville, Texas. So we moved from Louisville, the greater Dallas-Fort Worth metroplex, to Clarksville, Texas. You talk about culture shock. Wow. Wow. I had heard it was a basketball town, and I'll never forget, we pulled into town one day, I look over at the car next to me, they had replaced the hood ornament on that car with with the top of a basketball trophy of a guy shooting a jumper. (laughs) And I was like, we are in the right place. (laughs) Back at that time, Clarksville was winning state championships, and I'm like, man, it's my kind of place, right? But something wasn't right with me physically. Uh, And like most guys, I thought I was Superman, I had played college basketball, I'd always been healthy, never spent a day in the hospital apart from when I was born, and I just assumed that's how it was going to be, right? Um, But I was incredibly tired, and I told Christy, I said, I think I need to start running and lifting again, I think I've just kind of gotten out of the habit of of maintaining my physical health, and so I, I started doing that, and really quickly I lost 30 pounds. It happened way too fast, and I was even in denial about that because I'm thinking there is no way I'm running enough or lifting enough to lose thirty pounds that fast. But I still was just in denial. And when I was describing some of these symptoms to a little retired nurse in our church, she said, "Pastor Mike, you need to come out and let me check your blood sugar." I thought, for what? I don't have any history of diabetes in my family. All the things, right? I thought, there's no way, right? Uh, until. Uh, I got so sick at one point that I couldn't even keep down a glass of water. I ended up in the emergency room in what's called diabetic ketoacidosis. It's deadly. And in God's providence, the ER doctor that was on call just happened to have been a diabetic who had been a diabetic since the days they boiled syringes. Talk to me, talked to us for a few minutes, looked at my symptoms, and within about 10 minutes, he said, I'm pretty sure you're a type 1 diabetic. That was the diagnosis. Now, that kind of thing will change your life because you begin to understand really quickly that we're not going to give you some medicine, send you home, and in a couple of weeks, you're going to get all better. That's not how it works. Uh, that's not what it is. Uh, there's no cure up to this point, Thankfully, uh, things are advanced to the point that it's, uh, it's manageable, and by the grace of God, it has been for much of the last 27-some years, and I am so grateful for that. But you know what I said? They came in and told me, they said, you don't have to do it right now, but you cannot leave this hospital until you give yourself a shot. So I said, well, you just might as well hand it to me now, because I ain't staying here any longer than I have to, Right. And they start telling you all the things that are going to be a part of your daily life. You don't get to take a day off from this. Like, there is a real thing called diabetic burnout. Where you're just like, I just want to wake up tomorrow and not be a diabetic. That would be amazing, right? And some of you deal with similar things. I mean, every day you deal with chronic illness, pain, all the things associated with that. And, and so up until that point in my life, I had very little understanding of that kind of world. In fact, if I'm completely honest, there were times that I was probably a little impatient with people who who dealt with such things. I mean, my attitude was kind of like, suck it up, man, come on. And so uh, it it changed my life (laughs) in a dramatic way. And you know what I said? I said, I don't have time to be a diabetic. (laughs) And I still don't have time to be a diabetic. So I, I would chalk that up as one of the darker shades of providence. Nobody wants to be a diabetic. Nobody wants to deal with something like that. And I am Very, very mindful of the fact that some people, including some of you, deal with much darker, much more difficult providences. Martha and Mary, the sisters of a guy here in John chapter 11 named Lazarus, faced uh, such a season. When their brother Lazarus, Lazarus turned deathly ill and Jesus was out of town. Things got worse when Lazarus died before Jesus arrived. So we're going to take a pretty big chunk of John chapter 11 today because it's a narrative. And so we've got to get the full context of what's going down here. And we're going to cover the second half next week, uh, Lord willing. So hope that you'll follow along with me there in John chapter 11. We're going to read down through verse 37. Uh, I'm going to try to read pretty quickly. So if you'll listen quickly, we'll, uh, we'll get the context here. Now, a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair. You might remember that account earlier. Then after this, he said to the disciples, "'Let us go to Judea again.' The disciples said to him, "'Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and you're going there again?' Jesus answered, "'Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble, because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles, because the light is not in him.' And after saying these things, he said to them, "'Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him.' The disciples said to him, "'Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover.' Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Jesus has died, and for your sake I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe. There's that tie-in with John's purpose in writing this gospel. But let us go to him. So Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us go also that we may die with him. Verse 17 says, now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. She had said this. She went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now, Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. And when the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now, when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Verse 35 says, Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. Some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? So those of you who have been a part of the the John study, uh, I want to remind you of something. That uh, we're not told the names of the couple at whose wedding Jesus turned water into wine in chapter 2. We're not told the name of the Samaritan woman or the official uh, and his son in chapter 4. We're not told the name of the man who was uh, lame for 38 years in chapter 5, nor are we told the name of the man born blind in chapter 9. But here in chapter 11, it's different. We're given names. Much more personal, isn't it? Martha, Mary, Lazarus. What I want us to do today as we continue to look at this narrative section of John's gospel is I want us to look at the different uh, characters, the cast of characters in this narrative. And let's start with uh, this guy Lazarus, the guy who died. We're told three times in today's passage that Jesus loved Lazarus. The message that Mary and Martha sent to Jesus said simply, Lord, he whom you love is ill. John, uh, in his writing, to make sure that uh, we knew this was true and wasn't just something that Mary and Martha had uh, kind of made up or thought in their minds, tells us, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. And then later there in the text this morning, the response to Jesus weeping, the Jews said this even, see how he loved him. It was obvious to them. You see, when darker providences come into our lives, we are often tempted to question whether or not God loves us. You ever been in one of those spots? Things aren't going the way you expected. Uh, it doesn't seem to be any change. Let, let me assure you, we're not the first ones to experience such a season. All you've got to do is read the book of Psalms a little bit and you, and you hear words like, Why, Lord, why? How long? Oh, Lord, how long? When are you going to remove me from this pit? I mean, it's just language like that. It's, it's this place of dark providence that we many times don't understand. And it can feel like God doesn't care and God doesn't know. And, and God's lost track of, of kind of where we are. And, and, and things seem to be continuing in ways that we would hope they wouldn't. And, and it's just a difficult season. And so uh, many times that's the case. And we struggle some people would even say that sickness or difficulty, that the difficulties we face in life come either from the direct consequence of some terrible sin against God or from a lack of faith in God and His promises. They teach that we can be healthy and we can be freed from trials if only we have faith and live in obedience. That's called a prosperity gospel. Okay, we, live in a, we live in a broken, sinful world that is marked by sickness and disease and even death itself. And it's no secret to any of you this morning that, yes, Christians even are diagnosed with cancer. And sometimes Christians die with cancer. Well, that's incredibly hard to understand. It's the reality of the broken world in which we live. So where is God in those seasons? What's God doing in the midst of that? Lazarus' sickness and his death, I think they deny that way of thinking. In clear terms. You see, Mary and Martha and Lazarus were core supporters of Jesus. He'd been in their home. They hosted him and his disciples when he came to Bethany near Jerusalem and obviously had a close relationship with him. If anything, the words of Mary and Martha in this passage reveal a deep and strong faith. Jesus loved Lazarus. Let's talk about Jesus, right? He's the central figure, not just John's gospel, but the entire word of God. So if Jesus truly loved Lazarus, how do we explain his strange actions here? I mean, when you read through these 37 verses, you're like, this just kind of doesn't make sense, right? Right? He doesn't seem to respond to the news of, of Lazarus' illness with any kind of urgency. I mean, it would be like uh, one of us calling 911 and the dispatcher saying, Well, you know, I think most of the guys are at lunch right now, but I'll let them know when they get back. he would be like, what, what is going on here? This is not the response you expect when, when there's an urgent need, right? And so that, that's kind of what it seems like is happening here. We're told, in fact, that he intentionally waited where he was for two full days before he left to travel to Mary and Martha. Even more puzzling, we're told now Jesus loved Martha and his sister uh, and her sister and Lazarus, so when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Some translations translate the word so there as therefore, connecting it to his love for Mary and Martha and Lazarus. It's like Jesus loved Mary and Martha and Lazarus so much, therefore, he waited two days before he went to them. And we're in our humanist going, what? That doesn't make sense. I mean, I, I've been alongside families, and, and, and when, when the, the doctors come and they say, hey, y- it's time to call in the family. And we all know what that means. The, the end is near. It, it, it's, it's perhaps days, maybe even hours. Call, call in the family. And if someone you know, responded, one of the family said, well, you know, if I can fit it into my schedule... That, that's that's hard. Like, like what, what in the world? So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Now Jesus is telling. Uh, or John is telling us here, the reason why Jesus stayed where he was for two more days was because of his love for Martha and Mary and Lazarus. So to help us understand what's happening, I think we got to get the geography and the timeline clear in our minds. Jesus is staying at this point on the other side of the Jordan where he had gone with his disciples at the end of chapter 10. It was apparently three to four days' uh, journey by foot from Jerusalem. So the messenger was sent by Martha and Mary probably five to six days before Lazarus' death, thus arriving to Jesus and his disciples two days before Lazarus died. We know Lazarus is still alive when the, the messenger arrives to tell Jesus about his illness, and it seems obvious that Jesus waits until Lazarus has died to leave for Judea. It's like, did, did you not understand the seriousness of the situation? Things are not good. You need to come pronto, Right? He tells his disciples, "Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, indicating that he has just died." And Jesus knew this by supernatural knowledge. Then Jesus and his disciples leave on the journey to Bethany, arriving then four days after Lazarus's death and burial, and, and as he would have been buried the day that he died. That was the, the custom of that day. That's what would have happened. So what is Jesus doing? How in the world is this love? Why would he delay? Why four days? But Jesus tells us the answer himself when he first receives news of Lazarus' illness. This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. So the miracle of Lazarus' raising, which we are going to look at next week, uh, will be the seventh and final sign in the Gospel of John before his own resurrection. Okay? It's on the horizon. It will be the climactic sign showing the greatest power. And Jesus is aiming to glorify God the Father, to display his own glory, his own power as the Son of God, and strengthen the faith of his disciples, including Martha and Mary and Lazarus. And so the best way for him to do this is to delay. It's God's timetable. And arriving four days after Lazarus' death allows him to raise Lazarus after the Jewish people would have given up all hope. You say, what do you mean? Well, there was a Jewish rabbinical teaching of that day that held that the spirit of a person remained near the body, as if it were hovering uh, over and around the body for three days after death, making resuscitation theoretically possible. And yet after three days, the Spirit was said to depart to the afterlife, making a return to life impossible. Three days, does that ring a bell with any of you this morning? Yeah. It's incredible to think about this. Now, this teaching was not based upon Scripture, of course, but it was believed by many of the Jewish people, nonetheless. And so for Jesus, the raising of Lazarus gave him the perfect opportunity to teach his disciples an important truth about himself. Remember back through John's Gospel here. Just as Jesus had had fed 5,000 men plus women and children, and he used that sign to teach the important truth that I am the bread of life. Open the eyes of the man born blind so that he could teach the truth. I am the light of the world. So now he uses this sign of Lazarus's raising with his teaching I am the resurrection and the life. This is the fifth I am statement of Jesus in John's gospel. He has said, I am the bread of life. He has said, I am the light of the world. He has said, I am the door of the sheep. Remember that? I am the good shepherd. And now he says, I am. The resurrection and the life. This is perhaps the deepest and the most complex of Jesus' I am statements so far. So Jesus sets up this statement by vaguely telling Martha, your brother will rise again. Your brother will rise again. And Martha takes this to be a general reference to the hope of the resurrection at the end of time. It Makes sense. Jesus wants her to know, however, that the general hope of the resurrection that she has held on to for years is much more personal than she knows. So he says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Jesus' words are wonderful and also a tiny bit confusing, right? Right? It can appear on the surface that he's repeating himself, but he's actually talking about two different resurrections and thus two distinct connected ways in which he is the resurrection and the life. Martha has physical end times resurrection in mind. So Jesus starts here when he says, whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. So believers who die in the Lord will surely be raised to life again at the last day when Jesus returns in glory and ushers in the new heavens and the new earth. It's the reason that a gospel preacher can stand at the graveside of a follower of Jesus Christ and say, this individual, while their body is no longer here. It's about to be placed in the ground or whatever. They are more alive today than they've ever been before. Yet Jesus is the resurrection and the life before the last day. So everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Jesus means that everyone who comes to spiritual life and thus comes to believe in Jesus shall never truly die. The life that they have been given is eternal life. This theme was first explored in John's prologue all the way back in John chapter 1 where it says, But to all who did receive him, to them gave he uh, the, the, the right, the power to, b- to, to be sons, to be children of God, the right to become children of God who were born, not of, the bl- not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So believers in Jesus have been born of God, and those born of God will never die. And then you remember in John chapter 3, Jesus has this nighttime conversation with a guy named Nicodemus, a leader of the Pharisees, and he tells him, here's how this works. you got to be born again. Nicodemus is naturally confused. He's like, yeah, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is Spirit. And Jesus then said in John chapter 6, verse 47 Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. Jesus himself is the resurrection and the life. He himself is the eternal spiritual life we receive now by faith. And he himself is the power of resurrection and eternal, glorified, physical life that we will enjoy for all eternity in the new creation. With no more diabetes, by the way, or wheelchairs they cancer treatments. Man. We see Jesus' great sympathy here. I know when you're a boy in primary Sunday school class and you, you're called upon to memorize some verses, this is one of the first ones you go to, right? I mean, like, I got John eleven thirty five. 35. Jesus wept. I'm not sure at that point in my life I really fully understood what that meant. Now, in fact, if you look at the original language that's used here in John's gospel, it is a a, a clearly uh, physical type of weeping, crying, that would have been obvious to those around him. That's why the text tells us that even the Jews who were observant and were watching what was going on here, they're like, see how much he loved him. Like, it's obvious. Like, that's that's the kind of, of weeping that we see here. But they were also confused by Jesus' actions, by his delay in coming and by his failure to heal his beloved friend. If he loved this guy so much, they then asked, Could he not, the one who opened the eyes of the blind man, also have kept this man from dying? Now let's talk about the disciples for a moment. Everyone around Jesus in this passage seems confused by his words and his actions. Not the least uh, among the confused are the disciples. When Jesus decides to remain where he is for two days, they're pretty cool with that. And the reason... Is because uh, they knew that it wasn't that long ago when Jesus was there, they wanted to stone him, right? And so uh, they're not going to say anything. They're obviously not eager to return to Jerusalem. When they were in Jerusalem for the Feast of Tabernacles in chapter 8, when they were back in Jerusalem for the Feast of Dedication in John chapter 10, the crowd had tried to stone him both times. So it's probably early spring at this time, right around this time of year, okay, around March, they remember what happened in October and in December and they were not eager to return to the scene of two attempted stonings just a couple of short months earlier. So when Jesus announces to his decision to go to Lazarus, they feel the need to remind him uh, that those people weren't exactly rolling out the welcome carpet for you, Jesus. We're not so sure about this. So again, much like us many times, we question God's timing. We question God's wisdom. We question God's understanding of the the phase of life that we're in and the season that we're in. And and we feel many times as if every time we we dial up, it's like we're getting a busy signal. God's misplaced my file somehow or something. Something's got to change. What are we doing here? Let me talk about the sisters, Mary and Martha. Martha. They're as confused as the disciples and probably more distressed because of the grief of the death of their brother. And based upon what they both say to Jesus, it seems obvious that while they were waiting uh, for Jesus during those long days, they began to say to each other, much like we can do many times, if only. If only Jesus were here. And after Lazarus' death, if only Jesus had been here. Maybe you're in one of those seasons. You're like, if only God really cared. If only God really knew how much I'm suffering. If only God really knew the complexities of this relationship situation. If only. We find ourselves doubting many times. you got to remember, Jesus had likely been in their home many times. Now, when they needed him the most, he was so far away. Why? Why? And yet they still trusted in Jesus. (laughs) They knew in their hearts that that, that had he been there, that that he could have healed their brother. Right after Martha says to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died, she says this. She says, but even now, even, even in this difficult place of dark providence, we might say, even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Then, in this incredibly poignant exchange that is so important in John's gospel, when Jesus tells Martha, I am the resurrection and the life, he then asks her this, do you believe this? Jesus was masterful at asking questions and pointing them at people. Do you believe this? Do you believe I'm the resurrection and the life? And she said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God. Sound familiar? Sound like Peter's confession of the church, doesn't it? You the Christ who is coming into the world. You see the death of her brother didn't diminish her faith in the Lord. While Martha showed her faith by her profession, Mary comes and falls at the feet of Jesus. Early in her life, we see Mary uh, in the Gospel of Luke sitting at his feet, listening to him. Now we see her, her falling at his feet and weeping. And in the next chapter, spoiler alert, we will see her anoint his feet with costly perfume. Mary is seen three times in the same place at the feet of Jesus. What better place can you be when you're in a season of dark providence? Cling to Jesus cling to Jesus and then there's the crowds we'll talk more about them next week but beyond the disciples, Mary and Martha we see the, uh, this gathered crowd of Jewish mourners it would not have been uncommon in that day to actually hire mourners to come in, and wail and weep with you at the death of a, of a loved one some Jews were in the house with Mary consoling her, grieving with her we're told later that others came from Jerusalem and these people are confused too Their confusion is the last thing that we hear before Jesus comes to the tomb to raise his friend, which again we will look at next week. So, as we see the raising of Lazarus next week, we'll see that their response to this great work of God varies. It's not unlike the day in which we live. There is many different opinions in this world today about Jesus. I suppose there are noses. Who is Jesus? What's he all about? It's interesting that after we see this, we see this this varied response, depending on where they stand with God. Many come to believe, but some actually rush to tell the Pharisees and encourage them to take action against Jesus, even after being eyewitnesses to the most astounding miracle. But again, more on that next week. So we've taken a little different approach In today's passage. And in this narrative text, we've looked at Jesus' words and his actions, the words and actions of those around him. We've looked at this cast of characters here in these first 37 verses of John chapter 11. And we've done this to prompt us to think about ourselves and our lives in the light of this passage. Jesus is at work in our lives and in our world, the world around us. How do we respond? Again, maybe you're in one of those darker seasons. In today's passage, we see Jesus acting in ways that can be confusing to his followers and seem to be adding to their hurt. And yet in the midst of his confusing actions and mysterious words, we as readers of John's gospel can see that he is acting to ultimately glorify his Father, to better reveal himself to his disciples, to show his love and care for those he loves, and to sympathize with his loved ones in their grief. His actions are not rushed by the urgency of others, but neither are they delayed, as much as it may seem they are. Even when they seem like they are are delayed, he he acts in perfect love and in perfect wisdom. And in this passage, we get a glimpse at Jesus' intentions because John shows them to us. You see... I've often thought this would be amazing, but we, we don't have the benefit of an inspired gospel writer following us around, narrating our lives. It we, would be, be kind of nice sometimes, right? You enter into one of those dark seasons of Providence, it would be great if there was like some inspired dude named John behind you going, So Mike, check this out. This diabetes thing that you find so shocking, here's what God's going to do through it in a few years. Like he's going to give you a level of sympathy that you probably wouldn't have without it. And you're going to get to minister to people in ways that you probably couldn't if you didn't have it. And God's probably going to use it to humble your prideful self. So you'll depend on him. I didn't have that. didn't have that. God's begun to show me some of those things along the way and I'm still learning it. Remember the first time I spoke at a diabetic support group and I just kind of shared my story and I, I, I was using a text from, uh, I think, the book of Proverbs. It says you can't add one stature to your height. You know, you can't become six foot six just because you, you, you want to, <laughs> you, because you worry about it or whatever. I said, it's the same way with your blood sugar. Blood sugar is not going to come down and get in range because you worry about it. I had a lady come up to me and she said, you may, you may not understand this, but, but she said, I, I seriously thought about taking my life when I was diagnosed with this thing. And it was like a little light bulb came on for me. It's like, wow. But it would have been really nice in October of 1996 if someone could have been telling me those things ahead of time. It would have been much more clear. That's not how God works. What we can know is that He's the same yesterday, today, and forever, never changes. And if we are his sheep, he loves us just as surely as he loves Lazarus and Martha and Mary. He loves us personally, he loves us individually, and he loves us wisely. And as we spend time getting to know him in his word and in prayer, we can know that his heart remains the same, as do his priorities. So, what is he doing in our lives? He is glorifying his Father. He is revealing Himself to us and and loving us and He sympathizes with us in our trials and our grief. And how should we respond? Like His disciples, we should follow Him even when we don't fully get it. Like Martha, we should profess our faith in Him clearly even when we don't understand. And like Mary, we should follow His feet and worship even in the dark seasons of Providence. Let's pray together. I know for some of you things may be going incredibly well right now. Maybe you're in a season of life where you're experiencing just victory after victory and Breakthrough after breakthrough, but I also know that uh, we live in a very real, broken, sinful world. And the odds are pretty good that many of you are in a completely different kind of season. Where you don't understand. And things may seem a bit hopeless. While you may not understand it, God is ultimately working for our good and His glory in ways beyond our human understanding. So will you trust Him in that season? Will you lean on Him as the all-sufficient one? Father, we thank you for your word today. And while a section of a scripture like this can quickly become just another Bible story, a really cool Bible story of a guy who gets raised to life from death, there are some very, very important truths that can be applied to our lives today. So Lord, today I pray especially for those who may be in one of these seasons shaded by darkness difficulty we lack understanding feel as if we're forgotten help us Lord to know there's never been a time when you didn't love us didn't care never been a time when you were aloof distant from the things that we're experiencing Lord help us to trust and obey to cling to Jesus. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from First Baptist Church of Van Alstine. For more information about our church, visit www.fbcva.com.